Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. The first batch of international travelers under the new COVID rules by China landed at airports in the southern cities of Guangzhou and Shenzhen just after midnight on Sunday. China has just lifted its pandemic restrictions on foreign inbound travels and in quarantine requirements and the need for COVID tests upon arrival. But in an unexpected twist, some countries have announced fresh testing requirements that are only time target travelers from China. Are these measures really necessary? Are we in for yet another round of political manipulation? Let's hear what my special panel had to say during this special edition of The Point with me, Liu Xin, coming to you from the studio here in Beijing. I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by Aina Tangen, Senior Fellow at Taihe Institute, a think tank from Tel Aviv, Israel, by John Gong, Professor of Economics at the University of International Business and Economy, and from Washington, D.C., by Eric Ding, Chief of the COVID Task Force of the World Health Network. Gentlemen, welcome to The Point. Eric, let me go to you first. As I said, China has officially lifted its COVID restrictions on international travel starting on January the 8th. Now, authorities will uh, cancel COVID tests for inbound travelers and they will no longer ask for proof of a health pass or uh, travelers will not be put into mandatory quarantine upon on arrival. Also, China has also downgraded its management of COVID-19 from Class A to Class B. Some people say it's back to Class B and one of the major adjustments is changing the name of uh, the disease from um, COVID pneumonia caused by novel coronavirus to uh, infection by novel coronavirus. From a medical point of view, why does this matter? Thanks for having me. Well, I think, first of all, COVID is, uh, in terms of surging worldwide, it's very different than it was in 2020, when we obviously didn't have vaccines and many people weren't infected. So it's obviously, in certain ways, easier in terms of, and milder, if you have vaccinations. So if you have vaccinations, it is easier. But the infections do still persist and remain a clear and present problem. I'm not an advocate for the downgrading because it, in two worlds, when you have one virus that's more severe, less contagious, or uh, a less severe, more contagious, it's the less severe, more contagious that will epidemiology-wise send more people to the hospital and cause more deaths. And the problem right now is that the global uh, surge of COVID again this winter, especially in China, is going to ultimately send more people to the hospital, even if it is milder. So I don't think you should necessarily downgrade. Now, the mitigations, I understand it, the mitigations previously in the last three years in China were very difficult. But at the same time, dropping mitigations now in the middle of winter, middle of winter, may I add, is actually a really bad idea, uh, especially since China's some of uh, the uh, elderly population is not boosted enough, does not have the Omicron updated boosters. And there is a more dangerous variant circulating worldwide. And that is, I'm talking about the XBB15, the variant that uh, started in, in the Northeast US. So I'm not an advocate of biased testing. I think we should still test everyone. So I think some countries that test China specifically is unfair, but I think we should still keep up our mitigations. 
because the the deaths, the hospitalizations is still yet to continue building and the long COVID economic effects and debilitating healthcare effects will continue to build. Mm. So I don't think the pandemic is over. I think we should still continue to be vigilant. Yeah. Professor Gong, let me go to you from an economic, from a socio point of view, from a sustainable point of view. Uh, what are the considerations to your understanding of China's lifting uh, or changing of strategy of downgrading COVID from class A back to class B? My understanding is that uh, um, the change of policy is premised upon the, uh, the medical uh, conclusion that uh, this has a very high uh, R0 value uh, somewhere. I think uh, I thought it was uh, 18 uh, and it was uh, just said by an expert in China, I think yesterday, that it's actually 20. Uh, so given that fact, um, you know, it's just unstoppable. Uh, it's no way uh, with the existing measures you can stop spreading this thing. Uh, and, and second, you know, I think even though we are seeing, um, unfortunately, uh, fatalities, especially uh, among the uh, elderly population, um, I think the overall uh, toll on society, um, in both in terms of death toll as well as uh, the number of infections, uh, is some still you know very different from what the COVID first spread out in 2020, you know, in terms of this lethality. It's just not as easy as more. It's, it's not as uh, uh, killing as more, even though it still kills a lot of people. Um, so, and then also on top of this, you know, I think our economy cannot sustain like this being locked down for so long. Um, and we look at the, uh, the fiscal situations uh, in many cities in China, many provinces in China, look at the household income, look at the the business status, you know, it's just, it is, this policy is not sustainable anymore. So I think it's about time to adjust uh, course, even though I understand, you know, it's, this is not the, you know, one of the best times that do, of doing this at this point. We're getting into the winter and winter is indeed the, the time that it spreads most. So, um, but given all the choices, given all the uh, difficulties, given the status of the virus right now, I think, um, you know, we're somewhat forced to make this decision. Uh, and I think, you know, with the society, various aspects of society's uh, uh, commitment and the government's commitment, uh, we probably uh, definitely will uh, weather through this storm. As a matter of fact, uh, I think in many cities in China, we've already passed the peak. Uh, so uh, we're in a you know, post-peak era right now. And hopefully uh, this thing should be uh, behind us for good. We are in at least the first post-peak area. Uh, I see Eric shaking your head. I, I understand you have different opinion, but um, Aina, you have been throughout the whole period, the last three years actually in China, and you've seen the whole thing. Um, I, I just want to point out that uh, some of the adjustments under this new strategy is uh, not letting it rip, but rather, for instance, diverting resources to from prevention and control to monitoring the mutation from monitoring to monitoring wastewater to monitoring individual cases or pneumonia of other possible pneumonia of unknown cause or sentinel hospitals. And uh, there will also be adjusting test strategies, test strategies, which means no mass COVID tests will be carried out, but done according to people's needs. And uh, those who are infected will not be quarantined anymore, but emergency measures will still and can still be taken if cases really peak in the future in order to bend the curve. Uh, Aina, your understanding by changing the category from A to B down to B, is China letting it rip? 
Well, I think the semantics aside, uh, what China is doing is uh, it's decided when it wanted to open up. And, you know, quite frankly, there are a couple of uh, issues that I saw here. One, very important, was Qatar. You had four million people from around the world, including many, many from China, who went there. Yet there was no uh, repercussions. You didn't hear about uh, pandemics, uh, you know, breaking out because they went to Qatar. Now, those people went to all corners of the earth after the World Cup. So uh, right now, I think a lot of people looked at that. Certainly the public looked at that. They saw throngs of people in the stands um, and not wearing masks, uh, people on the you know, on the pitch, hugging each other, sweating on each other, shouting, all of these types of things that would normally be, you know, verboten in uh, a pandemic situation, but you haven't seen anything. And I think the Chinese government also took notice of that. Now, I, I, I understand Eric's point about uh, and agree that uh, the best thing is to make sure that everybody has a, a vaccine, but doing a vaccine a push, especially with the elderly at this juncture, would not have been fast enough. Uh, if you can get to that 65, 68 to 70 percent infection uh, where people are on, you have in essence brought people to a, a, a basis where, you know, six months from now you can start uh, administering boosters. But the question is, how do you get there? How quickly uh, can you uh, do that? And when is the best time to open up? Uh, fr from your understanding, uh I mean, from my understanding, people are still taking precautionary measures, right? I mean, everybody, pretty much everybody is still wearing masks, and that is advocated as well, Anna, very briefly. Yeah, I mean, it's not like people are wandering around. What was interesting is during the uh, first two weeks when the uh, Chinese government said, look, you know, uh, we're reducing uh, the threat level here, there was very few people on the street. In fact, it was uh, similar to if they had imposed a lockdown. And, and this is one of the main differences um, between China is that cult and, and other countries is that culturally people have a very strong sense of responsibility. So they didn't want to go out because they didn't want to get infected and they didn't want to infect others. So people are taking reasonable uh, precautions. Uh, there's always going to be some stern and drum, but if China is able to get to that 70 percent uh, rate, which it has done in the major cities, and yes, there will be some uh, more waves, but uh, within a few months or less, maybe just after New Year's, you're going to see a, a remarkably different China mm -hmm. uh, where uh, they can go on with the, both the medical and economic side. Pretty much already I see a lot of uh, normalcy back on the streets in Beijing, for instance. But Eric, you were shaking your head. And also, uh, please respond if you want. And uh, I also want to talk about the um, variant, the new variant which you talked about, which is the XBB.1.5. Um, that seems to be the lips of a lot of people, although right now officially China says it has not de detected a massive community spread of this new variant, which has a much bigger immune escape, as they say. Uh, how much danger does that pose to the mainland population, although it was first reported in the United States last October? I want to address the, you know, people who say once you get to 65, 70 percent, they're basically implying some herd immunity. And and it's been three years of the pandemic of experience. We've People said we were herd immunity after spring of 2020, herd immunity after winter of 2020 and 2021, herd immunity after Delta after the first wave of Omicron, in which many, a lot of people were infected. But the thing is, in three infections continue to happen because of the virus and its uh, mutation and its variants. 
So you, yes, you'll get a temporary respite uh, and relief for a couple months, but that just buys you some time until the next one mm. and the next one. And so you have a burn through, but then it'll burn through again with uh, these new variants. And for the example, the variant XBB15, WHO said it's the most transmissible variant currently. And for two reasons. One is the highest immunity escape for that leapfrogs that pole vaults over existing immunity from either vaccination or previous infection. And, and, and if it can do that, it's, again, the, the score, the escape score is incredibly high. It's, uh, it's 90, but it was, 95%. It was first de detected in the United States last October, yes. and it was yes. spreading yes. everywhere. But, but it seems that it has not been the prevalent variant in Europe. Well, for that's instance. because China, uh, because this is a variant that is, its specialty is reinfection. China, in certain ways, has a virgin fields of lots of uninfected people. So in China, BF7 or other variant is just as good right now because, uh, you know, China has virgin fields uninfected. XBB15 is a reinfection variant. And it's reinfection of not only escape, but also high penetrance because what it actually has one of the highest ACE2 binding, uh, basically, uh, fusion with human cells. So you may say we might have a respite in a couple uh, months or, um, and I, first of all, I remind people that the Lunar New Year travel is coming up and the Chinese cities have had burn throughs, but the rural areas, which have even less hospitals, will have another wave, I want to remind people. And for, and secondly, this reinfection potential means you find you bought, bought yourself two, three months, but so what? Uh, once XBB15 or another variant afterwards comes back, it will have another cascading wave. And that's what we're seeing in Europe. Sweden is a record high deaths again. UK and US, it's all going badly again. From a scientific point of view, that is an ideal situation to keep, you know, strict control, but from a sustainable economic point of view. But uh, Aina, I want to let you go yeah, in here. I, I, that, that's, Eric, I want to address that point. Basically, you're saying that China should go back to, uh, you know, this kind of zero COVID idea. No, and not zero. Like, there is an in-between. Well, is there, there is well where, where's the in-between? You're just saying that uh, this this is an infection reinfection uh, variant, and there's really no, um, you know, no defense against it. Basically, China is trying well, to take booster, a compromise. Booster. Yeah, go, go ahead. China and it does not have, I'd like to remind. Well, a Chinese company has just announced that uh, it has developed a messenger RNA uh, vaccine. China has 13 different vaccines and it has been stepping up vaccination of the older population. John, finally, to wrap up on this, do you have something to say before we move on to the next set point? Well, I, I think um, both uh, Anne and I are not advocating for doing nothing about potential waves. I think, um, you know, I think absolutely Eric is right that, uh, you know, we should get prepared with better vaccines, more vaccines, as well as uh, medications. I think probably we are seeing more and more advances on the medication side. Uh, but I think, you know, you, you just mentioned that the old policy is not going to be sustainable anymore. It's not going to be sustainable economically as well as politically. Um, so, so I think at this juncture, you know, I don't see any other choice but to move ahead with this, this adjustment that we have to uh, come back to uh, normalcy, that we're not going to be intimidated, we're not going to be locked down by this virus, no matter how many variants it has in the future. Um, I think at the end of the day, this virus is very different from it appeared in 2020, earlier 2020, and uh, um, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, uh, it, it's no longer like the beginning of the COVID time. We're going to be uh, in for a, uh, a long period of sort of post-COVID 
uh, era where these viruses uh, will come back again, 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 but, you know, not as lethal as it used to be. And it's something that we cannot go back to the old situation anymore. All right. Well, let's talk about uh, the kind of uh, restrictions that some regions uh, announced, have announced uh, about uh, inbound travelers from China. The United States, for instance, issued a statement uh, on the December 28th of last year that travelers from China will need to have a negative COVID test taken two days before departure, citing rising concerns over China lack of, China's lack of transparency over its outbreak, as well as its failure to adequately track and sequence variants within the country. Eric, um, is that going to make a difference? I mean, we know in the United States the dominant variant is the XBB already, and there are uh, 1 million, 1.1 million deaths, according to Johns, Cop Johns Hopkins University, and over 100 million cases already. I, I think the, the travel restrictions um, and, the, and the testing restrictions, I think there is a lot of bias. I think there is a lot of COVID worldwide and just merely testing China is unfair because there is a lot of COVID in Europe, a lot of COVID in the US. And, and again, I openly admit that the XBB15 is a US variant, although XBB was originally a Singapore variant, so which went to New York and then became XBB15. So we should have like comprehensive testing. Now, quarantining, we should obviously, it's a very difficult, but we should have repeat testing upon landing for international travelers. But we should at minimum have international uh, testing for travelers, but not in a Chinese targeted way, because right now there are a lot of virus even outside of China and to single out China is somewhat unfair. Um, is there a scientific explanation as to why the XBB15 is not as explosive uh, in Europe as in the United States if the uh, spreadability oh, is, is so high? It just started in the U.S. first, Northeast. It hasn't even spread to all of the U.S. Western U.S., Southern all U.S. Right. It's still surging. But it's because the prevalent it one now. Started. The epicenter was in New, but it's England. It's rising. Uh, in okay. in Central Europe, it's also rising. It will rise because it's like 120 percent advantage over okay. BQ variant. So the, uh, European, the, the European Union also uh, issued recommendations strongly encouraging its 27 member nations to require negative COVID tests for travelers boarding flights from China to the region. According to the statement, the member states agreed on a coordinated precautionary approach in the light of COVID-19 developments in China, especially considering the need for sufficient reliable data and the easing of travel restrictions by China starting on January the 8th. But the European Center for Disease Prevention and Control said on January the third in a statement that the variants circulating in China are already endemic in the EU region and as such are not challenging for the immune response of EU citizens. So a, a surge in cases in China is not expected to impact the COVID-19 epidemiological situation in the EU. Uh, John, from your understanding, the European CDC is saying this, but European recommendations still recommend uh, COVID testing or screening from uh, arrivals from China. How do you look at this? Yeah, so uh, Lucien, you exactly uh, make the point. The, 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 the thing is that um, the potential risk of uh, brought by uh, Chinese uh, 
outbound tourists, its impact on uh, European societies as well as American societies is actually very marginal, precisely because the, the virus, um, the version of the virus uh, coming from China is an old one. And in these societies, it has already developed the herd immunity to this. Uh, so the, you're not going to see uh, you know, massive infections as a result of this. As a matter of fact, it's going to be very marginal. And, and this is actually also the, this is not the, I mean, the, the, the risk of the virus is actually not the reason, at least Washington is quoting as a reason for imposing, you know, this required test. The reason is because, you know, so-called lack of transparent and adequate data. So they know the medical reason for doing or not doing this, but it, it's mostly for a political reason. And my argument against this uh, position is that uh, at this point, I don't think many societies, many countries are still actively tracking uh, the, 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 these cases and, uh, as they used to do. Uh, so what it means is that, of course, the, the data is not going to be adequate as it used to be. So, so what? I mean, uh, you don't have adequate data from China. You don't have adequate data from many European countries. You don't have adequate data from the United States, as well as from you know, many other countries around the world. So why that could be quoted as a reason for imposing these tests. So, so this is, you know, I'm very uncomfortable with. Um, and, I, and I can understand from a sort of a political perspective, it requires uh, a reciprocity, uh, you know, still you know, Chinese inbound travelers are still required to take a test before boarding onto the airplane. If that's the reason, you know, it's okay to say that's the reason. But if it's quoting so, sort of like a, a other reason in the, in the pretense of a medical justification, that's just unacceptable to me. Um, know what is your take of the reason of the excuse that, uh, you know, uh, the U.S. at least is citing is a lack of transparency or reliable sufficient data? Well, uh, listen, it's uh, purely political. It's uh, another attempt to, uh, one of the daily attempts to uh, try to contain China. Uh, it has a strong racial bias uh, element mm -hmm. to it. But, you know, I, I think Beijing needs to be careful about responding to this kind of nonsense. Uh, the fact is, China doesn't have to be defensive about its policies. The fact is, the world has chosen to coexist uh, with COVID, and they're going to go forward. Uh, there's, you know, you can say, well, you know, they do this, do that. Yes, you have to take precautions. Obviously, vaccines are incredibly important, but as Eric pointed out, even with vaccines, there are still variants that get around them, so you have a reinfection risk. But the fact is we are, as a world, uh, now going forward hand in hand uh, with this idea that we're going to coexist with something that is not going to go away. And it's going to be have to dealt with on a daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly basis. I, I don't know which one of you can answer this question about data, because right now it is difficult to get complete data as China uh, does not carry out massive uh, COVID tests anymore. And, uh, you know, the best you can have is uh, sampling or from the Sentinel hospitals, as I just mentioned. Um, so how can China step up the work in terms of collection of data and reporting of data to its international counterpart, be it the World Health Organization, organization or other international or other governments. Before Eric responds, I just want to say, if China reports inaccurate data, uh, there will be a massive pile on by the U.S. and Europe saying that somehow China is trying to deceive the world. Uh, I think quite clearly they've said uh, they're going to look at excess deaths, which is really 
uh, the, you know, the only way that you can measure it because it's not just deaths from COVID. It's also people who die because they couldn't get to the hospital or they were afraid to go or didn't take care of uh, chronic conditions. Uh, so, I mean, that is the most accurate way to do that. It has not been embraced, uh, despite the WHO uh, recommending that, uh, by Europe and the United States. There have been uh, independent studies that have been done uh, suggesting that the death tolls are much larger than things just purely from that point of view. So if China does that, that is the gold standard in determining what the effect COVID has had. All so right. I'll leave it to Eric. Um, anybody else? Yeah, Eric. Well, I think, first of all, Excess mortality is incredibly important, but I also point out that, you know, first of all, COVID causes more deaths than just direct respiratory failure. And China's current definition is way too narrow, way too narrow. And every expert agrees it's way too narrow to just count direct respiratory death because COVID causes a whole slew of diseases from such as clotting diseases, stroke, heart attacks, um, and many other uh, diseases. And again, if the hospitals are full, and someone dies of a heart attack at home unrelated to COVID, I would still say that is a pandemic-induced death because hospitals are overloaded, right? And so so you do need to kind of count the, the uh, broaden the actual direct um, caused definition. Uh, I, I get your point. Yeah. John, John, do you want, do you have a word here? Yeah, well, the, my, I'm not an expert in this area, I mean, from, from medical sense, but my understanding is that you know, for every death, there could be multiple reasons and COVID could be one of them. So the issue is, you know, if we really want to be scientifically very precise about this, we have to trace back the most important reason. And this is a very difficult case, actually. Um, you know, for every case, you, you, you go and, and trace back, you know, what's the ultimate reason for this. Uh, for, it's like, you know, trying to find whether smoking is ultimately responsible for lung cancer. It's, 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 it's a tall sure, order. That's and, a good uh, you know, so I think at this point... Like, we, we don't have to. Yes, we don't cause have... lung cancer. Lung cancer can cause someone's death. Yes, lung cancer causes death, but smoking also causes death. Right. And this is this is what we do in epidemiology. And also in death certificates, you can have the direct cause, but also have multiple underlying causes. China right now is muzzling the underlying causes. And and again, if you don't want to uh, have your uh, you know, relative cremated immediately, you would have to report report to the provincial government, yeah. for okay. example, uh, for many, many weeks for that to be, and many people don't want to do that. This is a very difficult issue, and this is an extremely complicated issue. I, I understand the authorities are doing the work, the reporting system is functioning, and uh, let's, let's give it a little bit of time. Eventually, I think people will want to know the uh, most reliable answer uh, so that nobody is misled and it reflects the reality. Many thanks to Aina Tangan, John Gong and Eric Ding joining us from Tel Aviv, Beijing and Washington DC. With that, we come to the end of this special edition of The Point with me, Lushin. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Lushin in Beijing. You've got the point.